on ABC New South Wales. This is the Country Hour with Amelia Bernasconi. Good afternoon. Thanks for your company this Tuesday lunchtime. Coming up this afternoon, some Aussie meat processors have trade halts lifted with China. You'll hear from the researchers behind a huge study into the health of the Richmond River, which found a cocktail of pesticide runoff. And also this afternoon... Everything felt fine when I woke up, drove down to work and literally fell out of the truck, couldn't regain balance. He was a healthy farmer and he'll open up about his stroke just over a week ago with us here on the Country Hour before half past 12. If you'd like to join us across the afternoon, you can text 0467 922 684. But overnight, China has relisted three Australian meat processors that were delisted due to COVID trade sanctions. Now, as you'd imagine, it's been widely welcomed by the industry, including the Australian Meat Industry Council, which says it's been advocating for some time for what it's today labelled a breakthrough. The Australian Lamb Company, otherwise known as ALC, based in Western Victoria, JBS Brooklyn in Melbourne's West and Tees Narracoot in South Australia, all voluntarily stopped sending meat to China in July 20. 20, obeying China's protocols in a move replicated by similarly affected meat processors around the globe. Meat industry analyst Simon Quilty has been keeping track of all of this and he told our reporter Jane McNaughton the financial ramifications have been huge. These were plants that were, you might say, had COVID-related issues at the time of their delisting, with two of them being delisted as far back as mid-2020. And the more recent one, if that's the right expression, was early 2022. In each instance, you know, there was um, either uh, issues of COVID being talked of or there was COVID present or they were trying to deal with COVID potentially at the time. But either way, um, you know, and, and often we were looking at some of the situation happening globally where dare I say, um, trial by media was happening as well. But these, in particular, one or two of these forfeited their licences voluntarily at the time, um, thinking they were doing the right thing. And here we are three and a half years later now receiving them back. Um, it was very a period of real uncertainty. All product going into China at the time was being um, tested for COVID. Um, on meat products because the Chinese believed um, that meat was a carrier of COVID. It isn't, um, and it was proven you know, scientifically, but nonetheless, that was their desire at the time. Do you know what the financial ramifications have been to these businesses of China closing its doors? I think in many respects, they've been enormous in the sense of just taking away one of the most important markets. But a lot of these operations have adapted, found new markets, but without doubt, this is welcomed um, by everyone. But for what it's worth, um, you know, China today is the second largest beef market that Australia has. Um, in terms of mutton, it's our number one market taking almost half of our mutton exports. Um, and in terms of lamb, um, it sits at, at number one as well. So, you know, each of these plants, particularly lamb and mutton, um, out of Brooklyn and out of Colac, are critical because those uh, small stock plants 
and uh, those two markets are very important. So just because these companies are now allowed to trade with China, you think they'll go back? Without doubt. I think that, um, you know, in the trading world, you are always looking for, obviously, the best bidder on the day. I think also that all those concerns about COVID, about, you know, the hypersensitive nature in which China was looking at it, when they lifted um, in January this year, the restrictions within China, um, you know, a lot of those concerns, you might say, have gone. Um, and as a result, you know, we're all looking to China today in a much different light than back then in mid-2020. So, yes, I think they will be shipping back there. And, yes, it's, it's truly welcome. Was there market diversification in the meantime, though? We heard other industries that have been banned by China, for example, wine, were sort of saying we're not going to be so reliant on China anymore. Is that the same with mutton, for example, or any of the meat markets? No, I think it's always challenging. Um, you know, often it's spoken of, you know, diversification, without doubt it occurs. But there are certain items that really end up going to certain markets. And a good example is is flat meat in, um, in the mutton and, and lamb sector, that China is a critical part of that, breast and flat. Um, so even though in all the best intentions in the world, but the next alternate market is so less in price that it does truly make a difference. The other area is offals where China is paying a premium above all other markets. So, you know, it, it really is different items for different markets. Some can be diversified, but in many situations, China is absolutely key when it comes to certain meat items. So why did it take China so long to welcome these companies back? Well, that's really a decision made by China, of course. But I think part of it too is let's think about, you know, the political um, relationship with China and Australia, that it had been truly problematic for a good while. And just until recent times, you know, Australia has, you know, really made a huge effort to try and patch up the differences. And I think that so much of this is about, you know, the work that our government has done. And so full credit to them and the various departments in restoring relations. What will this mean for the domestic market? Well, it helps all um, markets in the sense that once you create that extra competition, it tends to, one, help lift prices and two, divert product to where it's most needed. And as I said, you know, mutton, for example, China is the number one market, 46%. You know, keep in mind, we've still got seven plants across Australia that haven't got access yet that have also been delisted over the last three and a half years. So from a Victorian point of view, and in particular from a mutton and lamb point of view, this is truly good news. Of those other seven plants, it's really Queensland, of which six of those seven reside, and it's beef that dominates it. That's meat industry analyst Simon Quilty speaking there with Jane McNaughton. Now, a number of meat export establishments remain suspended with the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries working with China's customs agencies to resolve these technical impediments to trade. In a statement issued exclusively to the ABC, Trade Minister Don Farrell says it's a positive step towards the stabilisation of Australia's relationship with China. 
Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, Murray Watt, says it's very welcome news for Australian farmers and meat processors. He says, as our biggest trading partner, the normalisation of trade with China has been a big win for our agricultural sector. China has already lifted some trade barriers, which were placed on several Australian commodities in recent years, including uh, they have lifted those crippling barley tariffs, and China's also agreed to review hefty tariffs on Australian wine, and we are expecting a decision on that next year. If you've got thoughts on that, you can always send them through via the ABC Listen app. Just click contact the program, or you can text old-fashioned 0467 984. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. One of the largest studies into the health of the Richmond River has discovered concerning amounts of chemical runoff, even including one banned pesticide. Researchers from Southern Cross University described the results as a cocktail of nasty pesticides in oysters and water from the Richmond, with the samples taken in 2020 and 2021, of course prior to those catastrophic Northern Rivers floods. CSU professors Kirsten Birkendorf and Mandy reichelt Bruchette have just had their findings published in the Environmental Pollution Journal. They told Kim Honan the results are concerning for people who live and work along the Richmond River. This has been the most comprehensive study of the Richmond River in terms of pesticide analysis and we found a total of 21 different pesticides which is you know quite a, a high load of pesticides and some of those are exceeding environmental guidelines. And you were actually analysing for a lot more pesticides, what some 171? Yeah that's right so we used a scattergun approach and we were scanning for over 150, 171 pesticides at some sites. Um, what was interesting, though, that at some of the sites um, we detected 11 different pesticides and um, always at all sites there was several pesticides detected. Before you started the research, did you have any indication that this level of pesticides would come up, would show up in the samples? Uh, we expected to see some pesticides, particularly running off um, the intensive agricultural areas, the sugarcane fields, um, but I don't think we expected to find so many and we definitely didn't expect to find Benamil, which is a banned pesticide. So you actually found three banned pesticides? We found one pesticide that's banned for use in Australia mm-hmm. and we found another three pesticides which are banned for use overseas. Okay, so there's only one that's banned for use in Australia, yep. yeah, but concerning that the other two are banned in overseas countries. Yes, um, atrazine and diuron um, banned from over 60 countries overseas and diuron was previously banned in Australia but that ban was rescinded in 2012 so it's allowed for use again at the moment. And how many sites did you actually test? How many samples at those sites? Uh, we had di- six different sites across the estuary and because we were looking at uh, water samples as a technique, we were also using passive samplers as a technique and also oysters as biomonitors. We really focused on the estuary. Oysters don't grow in fresh water, so this is a you know, brackish water study. So it would be great to look further upstream and in more freshwater environments, but this study focused on the estuary. And did you test the oysters in each of those sites? Yep, each site had um, those um, three methods um, applied to it at different times. But also, um, yeah, so we had sites along Empire Vale, we had a site in Fisheries Creek, in Emigrant Creek and also in North Creek. So focused around the urban areas as well as the rural areas. And what was interesting is some of the pesticides we picked up aren't used for agriculture, but they're used for activities such as roadside weed spraying. 
um, and you know uh, playing fields um, maintenance and different um, things so it actually demonstrates that there's a, a range of different sources of pesticides even when we consider agriculture as the main main um, focus point so this research isn't just a, an alert to the farming practices across the region but also urban development and you know council activities um, even you know regular households Absolutely. I think we need to be very aware of um, pesticide use around any water bodies where they can run off into the river. And we need mechanisms for buffering that runoff. You know, our riparian zones, having vegetated riverbanks and creeks and wetlands, mangroves, they're all really important for catching some of that runoff and buffering the pesticides from getting into the rivers. So what are the, the main sort of farming practices, crops, uh, agriculture that could be the cause for these pesticides run off into the Richmond River? Oh, when we look at our landscape, we're dominated by several different agricultural industries, um, in, including macadamia nuts and sugarcane and bananas. But we also have a lot of small mis- mixed crops as well. So any, any land use that is um, applying pesticides, including fungicides, insecticides and herbicides, um, will be a contributing source. And that banned pesticide, Benamil, was it found at all six sites? The Benamil is found in both oysters and in the water samples, um, so it is actually getting in and contaminating the oysters as well. And I'm pretty sure it was found in sites that were getting runoff from the sugarcane fields. Southern Cross University professors Kirsten Birkendorf and Mandy reichelt brichette speaking there this morning with Kim Honan. You are tuned to the New South Wales Country Hour, 19 past 12, and Amelia Bernasconi with you this Tuesday. Let's jet over to Dubai now, where attempts to forge a historic deal to phase out fossil fuels at this year's UN climate talks are hanging by a thread after a draft agreement dropped references to the term. Stakes were raised higher at COP28 last night when the draft agreement failed to make any mention of phasing out or phasing down fossil fuels. In its place was a reference to reducing both the consumption and production of the fuels. And many of the poorer, more vulnerable countries were quite dismayed at that. And up until two years ago, no COP had ever directly mentioned fossil fuels as part of efforts to tackle global warming. That all changed in Glasgow and the commitment to phase them out was included for the first time. But this year in Dubai, efforts to widen the net to include oil and gas appear to be coming unstuck. There'll be more coverage across ABC News throughout the day. But meanwhile, a food systems roadmap released at COP28 says reducing meat production will help meet global environmental goals. The roadmap from the Food and Agriculture Organisation was released on Sunday, which is the President's Day at COP28 and dedicated to food, agriculture and water. Now, National Farmers Federation President David Johinki has been in Dubai and he took part in everything from panel conversations to protests. He told Fiona Broom he was there to deliver the message that production shouldn't be compromised in efforts to reach climate targets. We had numerous events that we both sat on panels for and gave presentations at, as well as uh, even joining a protest to make sure that agriculture and farmers were recognised in the conversation around climate change and the fact that we are both the most exposed industry and the industry that needs the most engagement to come up with solutions as well as discuss what options there are for us to participate in the global climate change discussion. 
This climate conference promised to focus on food systems and agriculture. Do you think that agriculture got its day in the spotlight as promised, or do you think it's been overshadowed at all by some of the other negotiations? Look, it was excellent that we had a day. It was an excellent that we were able to promote both what agriculture does and can do within the climate change discussion. However, there was a lot of other conversations going on, and I don't think we quite got the cut through that we would have liked. But uh, saying that, if we weren't there, if we weren't promoting what agriculture can do, um, I dare say that we would have been completely lost in the conversation. And you are on your way out of Dubai as we speak. What was the message, though, that you went to deliver? Oh, it was very simple for us. It was the fact that agriculture should be included in both the climate system itself because we are identified as one of the major emitters. So let's actually put ourselves onto the stock take, let's put ourselves into the discussion around what are the opportunities in agriculture, but then also what are some of the challenges and be quite upfront that quite honestly, if we're going to spend carbon, if you look at the carbon outputs of the different industries, you should be spending agriculture because we are the one one system that can both draw carbon out of the environment. And yes, we, we do emit carbon as well, but we also produce food. And if there's going to be anything that we produce that's more important than food, um, uh, well, I doubt there's anything more important than food. Therefore, that's why carbon should be um, allowed to be used in our system. So for us, it is getting that message that agriculture is important and that we have that dual role of uh, both producing food and also being able to work within a cycling carbon system. The Food and Agriculture Organisation re- released the first of a, a three-part roadmap on the Food, Agriculture and Water Day at COP28. Uh, the roadmap says that there will need to be some production shifts in order t- for the world to meet climate targets. How was this roadmap received by the agricultural community there? Well, we're very clear that we don't want to see any reducing of production. We want to see that farmers can still get on with the business of farming, but doing it with the latest technology and the best research at hand. And this is the part that we've also been trying to um, keep promoting is that Australian farmers are very advanced in our processes. We have adopted a lot of great technologies and, and techniques. We've already done a lot of work and that that should be included in that conversation. We we feel that especially being in a developed country, the additionality request of agriculture shouldn't stop us from producing food. And there is only so much more that we can give. And we also don't want to see agricultural land locked up for pursuits that may be of carbon benefit, but don't actually benefit the production of food and fibre. So in amongst all that, we, we have got some concerns, but also we see a lot of opportunity as well. David Jehinke speaking there from Dubai. He is, of course, the president of the National Farmers Federation, speaking there with reporter Fiona Broom, who's written a great article. You can find it at the ABC Rural website. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Neil Baker is a beef cattle farmer, a pork producer, and he can now count himself as a stroke survivor. Ten days ago, he suffered a stroke on his property in the Tweed Valley, and luckily was able to get medical help fairly quickly. He shared some of that advice and his experience with our North Coast reporter, Kim Honan. That was a hell of a shot. As everything felt fine when I woke up. Drove down to work and literally fell out of the truck. Couldn't regain balance. What I now realise is confusion because I was trying to work how I was going to feed the pigs and let the dog out. And it was only 
after the vomiting subsided that I was able to call Michelle for an ambulance. So really scary incident. And did you realise that it could potentially have been a stroke straight away? I've been through a first aid course. I've called the ambulance into a possible stroke victim, but I think reasoning and farming instinct took over from first instinct to call the Yambos, which I now know is has to be called fast. Otherwise, time is of the essence for us to get help, but also to get the medication, which is so important. And how soon did that happen? How soon did you get to the hospital and how soon did you get the, the clot-dissolving drug that you needed? I was really lucky, even allowing for me dithering for 10 minutes till I called Michelle. Michelle uh, was really fast. They called the Ambos, my father-in-law. Ambos were there within 10 minutes. Tweedheads within probably an hour of onset and probably within 90 minutes had the Alterplays clot-busting injection and that is probably why I'm so good with the speed. If it hadn't have happened so quickly, do you know what position you would be in today? Probably a lot worse than what I am now because... Unfortunately, us farmers are not known to A, ask for help, but B, put farm above everything else. And I now know that farmers are disproportionately represented in those recovering from a stroke. So uh, definitely uh, it wouldn't be as good because you lose something like 2 million cells a minute after a stroke. So you just need to get the best help you can to give you your best chance of survival so you can come back to the farm. Well, I guess you're lucky that you live relatively close to a hospital, but for those farmers more remote, that they might not be able to. Correct. So I think that makes it even more important that they call for help early and leave it to the AMBOs who are absolutely brilliant to get help to you. Uh, as I found out, when you call Triple O, they can organise the hospital and all the associated equipment that they need for a possible stroke victim and anybody going to hospital under their own steam don't provide them that opportunity to prepare and as I now know time is of the essence for anybody. And Neil do you know what caused the stroke? What were the circumstances, lifestyle that led to it? Uh, Probably stress would be part of it but at the end of the day though I'm only 59. I think I'm fairly healthy Uh, even young people can get strokes. So it appears that strokes of different types can hit people at any stage. So I think that's why it's important to react fast to a stroke, and that is is somebody's face drooping. Can they move their arms or their leg? Is their speech slurred? And then if one of those is the case, you really have to act fast and call triple O. So, yeah, anybody can do it. Anybody can suffer from it but we all can control how we respond and hopefully get treatment really fast. And you mentioned stress there. It certainly has been a stressful couple of years um, for farmers in the region, yourself included, and now on top of the the flood recovery, you've got fire ants to deal with. Your property is is within that five-kilometre biosecurity zone. How concerned are you? From a stress point of view, it's never-ending for a farmer. We had the Cyclone Debbie and the flood in 2017. We had the 2019 drought and fires. We had the 21 flood, the 22 flood. Uh, we're still 
uh, bringing the farm back into production and repairing all the fences and drains and creeks and that never stops. And then on top of that, yes, fire ants were in the zone. So many of us were concerned as to when it was going to happen. But, you know, we certainly need to beware. We need preferably to have kept them out, but they're here now. Certainly we have concerns not only with our own livestock, but also with the insects in the environment and whether they can survive and how important they are to all our agricultural production. It's the case of we don't want them spread around the country. Um, and they should have been kept out of the country in the first place, one would add as well. So it's just an added complication that we now have to deal with. Hopefully that they've got on top of it and hopefully they can eradicate that maybe the chances lost when they didn't keep them in the port of Brisbane, I think, where they arrived. And, and what restrictions have you faced? Well, we couldn't move anything out of the 5K zone. So initially we couldn't move any excavators or farm equipment off the farm, whereas that's now been uh, relaxed and simplified. Uh, hay couldn't be moved out of the 5K zone. Uh, I believe that they're getting on top of uh, the processes for that and that's starting to... Uh, be sorted so it's more efficient. It really is a case, though, that uh, we need to beware to do the right thing. If we've got to keep them here in the tweed, okay, keep them here, but just don't let them get out of the tweed. So everybody has to do their bit. And what about your livestock? If you did have an infestation on your property, what sort of impact could it potentially have on your beef cattle and your pigs? Well, obviously, from the first point, yes, those uh, animals can certainly be uh, bitten and stung. We know fire ants are quite ferocious. Uh, so it's obviously our cattle and uh, pigs' welfare that we're concerned about, as well as all the other native wildlife as well. But uh, importantly for us, livestock were not impacted and we could move livestock out. So all our uh, porkers and bakers, baconers for Christmas hams, uh, have been able to be shifted away and they're now smoking and we can move cattle around freely. But at the end of the day, it's just another complication for farmers. It's certainly a stressful industry, isn't it? That's pig and cattle farmer Neil Baker from the Tweed Valley. He was speaking there with Kim Honan just 10 days after he suffered a stroke. Unfortunately, was able to get that help as quickly as possible, as you heard there. On the country hour, it is 29 minutes to one. And before one, you'll hear... What's next after Richmond Valley Council rejected all tenders to lease the Northern Rivers Livestock Exchange in Casino? And we'll head to one of the country's largest solar farms to see how sheep farmers are managing their livestock's return to the paddocks. Mustering can be a bit of a challenge at times, but, I mean, the benefits far outweigh that. We've got protection, shade for the sheep, piers at this stage, that there's good grass growth. But at 28 minutes to one, let's get the latest from the newsroom. Bindi Bryce is here. Good afternoon. Hello, Amelia. Police say two people are believed to have died in a plane crash northwest of Grafton in northern New South Wales. Emergency services were called to the property at Lilydale around 9am today after reports a light plane crashed into power lines. Local officers are working to identify those on board the aircraft and investigations are ongoing.
The CEO of the Smith family is calling for more targeted financial support for public school students and teachers. A major review into education has revealed that nearly all public schools fall short of the recommended school resourcing standard, whereas non-government schools receive funding at or above the full government's level. It comes ahead of state, territory and federal government negotiations for a new funding deal in 2024. The children's charity is calling for urgent change to rebalance the system. New laws aimed at eliminating workplace sexual harassment come into force across the country today. The law means Australian businesses may be asked to prove to the Human Rights Commission that they're taking action to eliminate sexual harassment and discrimination in their workplace. It's hoped the laws will put a greater onus on businesses to solve the issue rather than workers. And meat that's grown from cells is now one step closer to appearing on supermarket shelves in Australia. The food safety regulator has had a good look at a quail meat product from a Sydney-based cultured meat company. They found the cultured quail is genetically stable and bacteria-related risks are very low. The regulator has proposed using the term cell-cultured on the labelling. Interesting stuff, Nilly. Mm. Well, I'm no marketing expert, but um, I don't know how that one will land. I'm sure our listeners might have some opinions. You can text us through 0467 922 Bindi Bryce, thank you very much. No worries. Bindi Bryce there from the newsroom with the latest there. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau now. Juan Park has the latest on the weather front. Good afternoon, Juan. Uh, good afternoon, Amelia. Um, I like to see that this heatwave is... Uh, the warning's being cancelled for parts of the state. Which parts, though, are still under this heatwave warning? Ah, uh, yes. The heat is still uh, in the west and so we, uh, and in the southeast as well. So with that, we still have got a severe heatwave warning current for um, Illawarra and the south coast and the um, central tablelands and central west slopes and plain and the uh, southwest slopes and riverina and lower and upper western. Um, but the good news is that the heat is easing and this heat wave warning is based on the three days period, uh, period conditions. So that means this heat wave may be still lingering in some parts of the east because of the past heat, but generally the eastern district we have seen uh, quite, uh, e- quite easing of uh, heat uh, and the temperatures. Although the heat is still remaining in the west, that means Across the west of the divide, we may still see the temperatures rising up to high 30 degrees today. But in the east, the temperatures will be in high 20s to low 30s, although it will be quite muggy because of the moist easterly delivering a lot of moisture across the east. Otherwise, we are not expecting much weather, much weather today, apart from some chance of showers or thunderstorms about southern and central ranges in the far west today. And then tomorrow, Tomorrow, uh, we may see interesting weather developing because uh, the trough system in the far west will become mobile and as this trough system moves across the western inland, we may see showers and thunderstorms expand, uh, extending to uh, many parts of the state with the uh, focus areas in the southern and central inland and, and in the southeast quarter, where we may see severe thunderstorms uh, as the trough makes its way to the east. And also, we expect extreme fire dangers in the southwest uh, quarter of the state, including northern Riverina and the southwest uh, fire district. So a fire weather warning is also something uh, in the watch list. So uh, 
watch this space as well. And then on Thursday, um, as this trough makes its way to the northeast quarter of the state, we expected the showers and the storms and the heat, uh, as well as the fire dangers uh, shifting to the northern and the eastern district. Uh, so, uh, and, and this will be followed by late southerly uh, changes along the southern and central part of the coast. So, with that, uh, we expected the risk of severe thunderstorms in the inland and southeastern part of the state on Wednesday, shifting to the northeast uh, on Thursday. And also, we, uh, with the heat shifting, uh, shifting to the east and uh, making its way back, so we may see um, high fire dangers reaching marginally extreme uh, fire dangers in some parts of the eastern district, including the greater Sydney and Hunter. And this may potentially escalate to extreme fire dangers on Thursday. So this is, again, watch this space and keep yourself up to date with the latest info from RFS. Goodness me, there is a lot to go through, Juan. Thank you so much for taking us through it this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you. Juan Park from the Bureau of Meteorology. You can download their app if you don't already have it and stay tuned to us here as well on ABC Radio. For everything you need to know weather-wise across the week, it um, might be a small reprieve for some areas today, but still a lot happening in the weather space. You are tuned to the New South Wales Country Hour, 22 minutes to one. Hi, I'm Renee Crosh from Evenings. Summer is the perfect time to download the ABC Listen app and enjoy a world of great ABC content. You can take the cricket with you wherever you go. I'm keen to rediscover the best radio and podcast interviews, like Roy and HG's Bludging on the Blind Side, and might even dabble in some music from classic or jazz. Yep, bring on summer listening and listen big with the ABC Listen app. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. And Amelia Bernasconi filling in again today for Michael Condon. Now, a new report's shown most southwest slopes timber businesses are still recovering from the 2019-2020 bushfires. 90% of the softwood grown in the region is processed locally for timber, pulp and paper. And this research examined the socioeconomic impacts of that massive effort to salvage and process burnt logs. Our ABC Riverina reporter Emily Doak has the story. The 2019-2020 bushfires burnt almost 50,000 hectares of pine plantations in the Murray Region Forestry Hub, 44,000 of those around Tumut and Tumbarumba. Softwood Working Group Executive Officer Carly Porteous says 42% of the burnt timber was salvaged. They salvaged um, the burnt wood for two years after the fires. So that's two years before the wood started to deteriorate where they couldn't use it. That's not been done anywhere in the world. Um, so the, the collective effort to research how to manage that wood, how to process that wood, um, how to recover that wood, um, is truly, uh, you know, needs to be applauded um, for the industry working in that region at that time. A University of Canberra report commissioned by the Hub found that in the recovery year of 2021-22, the local timber industry generated more than $3.8 billion in output due to the increased salvage and replanting activity, plus the higher demand and price for timber. Lead author Mel Milek says there were more than 2,000 direct jobs during that time. Immediately after the fires, there was a lot of activity within the forest. So forest growers and the harvest and haulage contractors were in there working to salvage all the timber that they possibly could. But during the financial year that we were looking at, it was probably more the processing industry that had that um, that was still processing a lot of that timber. 
so more than what they would usually be processing. There was also the silvicultural side of things where you have the expanded nurseries to keep up with the amount of planting that needs to happen. The people out there planting, preparing the sites on a much larger scale than they would usually. So we did see a lot of uh, government grants which were put into the region from both state and federal government to support the timber industry post-bushfire. From your research, did you get a sense of what sort of difference that made in terms of the businesses and their ability to salvage wood? The data suggests that the fact that they were still salvaging nearly two years after the bushfire, that a lot of those grants were aimed at helping with with that salvage, but also with helping with stockpiling um, the timber so that it can actually be processed. I don't think that the industry could have salvaged as much or for as long a period of time without that government assistance in place. Now the salvage effort has drawn to a close, the industry is looking to the future. The report says much of the plantation resource that would have been harvested over the next 20 to 30 years has been burnt and won't be available for at least the next 12 years. It says processes will increasingly need to source from outside the region, something that will come with increased transport costs, creating a risk to current production. Dr Milak says while some businesses have a positive outlook, many are still recovering. When we conducted the survey, that was actually earlier this year, a lot of businesses felt that they'd recovered fairly well. That was just over 40%. A 38% said that they felt that they had financially recovered from the bushfires as well. But... There are a lot of businesses that were indicating that they were still in that recovery process. So there were 64% that still experienced some level of stress or anxiety because of the bushfires. Um, Over 60% said that um, their business was financially worse off and that, you know, over 50% said that it will still take many years for their business to recover completely. That's Dr Mel Milek from the University of Canberra ending that report from Emily Doak. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. 17 minutes to one and New South Wales, one of New South Wales' largest solar farms has just welcomed its first mob of sheep at Urala's New England Solar Farm. They plan to have about 6,000 head roaming amongst its panels by early next year. As reporter Peter Sanders found out when he visited yesterday, the first 2,000 sheep have been mustered and released on the property. Mustering can be a bit of a challenge at times, but I mean the benefits far outweigh that. We've got protection, shade for the sheep, peers at this stage that there's good grass growth. Simon Wood and his brother Cameron own a sheep farm just outside of Urala. Among their 2,000 head is some of the 1 million panels that make up the New England solar farm. In 2017, we're in the middle of one of the worst droughts ever, and they came and said, that we'll give you this much money, and if you want it, you can have it on your place. Obviously, when you've had so many heavy construction vehicles through, there's you know, a few tyre ruts and um, a few patches of, of, of non-growth, but I mean... We're very early doors into a a long contract, so I imagine that the land will recover over time and uh, that the sheep will reap the benefits from it. Despite some of the drawbacks, the brothers are expecting some long-term benefits to their land and not just financially. Because the panels are trackers, at some stage during the day there is sun on the grass. I think that the grass growth underneath is just the protection that they'll get also from the shade from the hot days. It won't be drying the ground out underneath them quite as well and then you get the dew off the side of the panels as well. So everything seems to be a win-win. The the, the analysis that I've been using is that the grass will always grow longer under the eaves at the house so I assume that the same will be out here. The palatability of the grass and, and the nutritional value 
is yet to be seen, but I mean, so far so good. As project manager of one of the country's largest solar farms, Sarah Donnan has gone to extensive efforts to make sure the fields and nearby Aboriginal cultural sites have not been impacted. We initially fenced the sites. We make sure that the contractors didn't disturb them or go near them. But we've also got a long-term partnership with our registered Aboriginal parties to maintain inside those fenced areas. Again, it's all about the landscape management and keeping down the fire risk. And they've been very keen to keep some of their main sites like the grinding groove site behind us here. We keep that maintained because they've used it for cultural ceremonies and to bring other people to look at what they're doing. The point of the solar farm is that it doesn't replace the sheep grazing. It doesn't replace the cultural heritage. We're very keen on our partnerships and making sure that our First Nations partners and our landholders can work with us. We don't want to come onto the land, fence it all off and nobody else is allowed here. Obviously it's generating electricity so there's safety protocols in place. The solar farm can now produce up to 400 megawatts for around 300,000 homes. The Wood Brothers hope it'll also help them out should drought conditions return makes life a lot easier when you know that you've already got that guaranteed income coming in. Well, you've always got that ability to be able to buy feed if you need to, but also know that you can invest in different infrastructure as well, knowing that that guaranteed income is going to come in. Potentially see generational change where before expanding was becoming more and more difficult as a, a small family farm, being able to expand for the next generation is, is a real possibility now, which is quite exciting. Your Alice Sheep producer, Simon Wood, ending that story there from Peter Sanders. Now, staying up on the Northern Tablelands and just north of Urala at Armadale, a new $370 million solar farm's just been given the go-ahead. The New South Wales Independent Planning Commission late yesterday approved the Oxley Solar Farm in the New England Renewable Energy Zone. New England Northwest reporter Lara Webster has been following those developments and with us this afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Millie. Take us back, there is a lot of activity in that New England res. Just remind us of the scale of this Oxley Solar Project. That's right. We do have a lot of projects proposed for that area, Million. Look, the Oxley Solar Farm comprises uh, of a 215 megawatt solar farm. So to put that in, into perspective, basically it would power 78,000 average homes. And so there are about 385,000 solar panels that cover, I think it's something like 267 hectares. So it's there in proportion and uh, yeah one of the projects that that now has the go-ahead in the New England res. It did of course end up with the IPC. What community conversations led it to that point? Well that is correct and the Department of Planning and Environment Millie had completed a whole of government assessment that was in October this year before it did go to the Planning Commission for determination and that was basically because at least 50 or so people had objected to the proposed development. So those concerns included uh, environmental impacts on surrounding land, the disposal of solar panels was also a very big uh, concern, also the contamination of soils as well as erosion around water courses. But the approval did of course come through late yesterday afternoon that the Commission found the proposed site is a suitable site and Millie that was after they had met with some key stakeholders. I think a site inspection had been conducted as well, some tours. We did have public meetings in the area um, and they had also looked through the 32 written submissions from the community but yes they did determine to grant development consent to the project. That is of course Millie subject to conditions. Yes, of course. We, it's a big job for the IPC and we often do see those conditions. What were the big ones with this approval? 
So with some of the concerns raised by some members of the community, uh, they have looked at a few different things, but they've called for an updated and detailed landscape plan. That's comprising of additional on-site vegetation milling and supporting uh, so performance objectives to ensure that the project's integrated into the, the wider landscape. Now, the conditions also require Oxley Solar Farm to undertake complete rehabilitation of the site. They have to establish a range of strict soil and water management measures as well, Millie, off the back of the number of concerns that were raised around contamination of soil and water. Uh, and all of those are designed to prevent, minimise and offset all of those concerns that have been raised. There'll also be very regular monitoring and reporting, Millie. So as you know, you've reported on these many, uh, many of these yourself, but yeah, there, there are some very strict criteria to be looked at and to be followed. But I think in the coming days, We'll certainly hear more reactions uh, from those who certainly didn't support uh, the proposal. Of course, we do have some who had supported it as well, but uh, I think we'll see those reactions in the coming days. Lara Webster, thank you so much for delving through that approval to bring it here this afternoon. Thanks, Millie. Thank you, Lara Webster, your ABC New England Northwest Rural Reporter on the Country Hour at 11 minutes to one. A couple texts coming in. We were speaking earlier about a... uh, investigation, a research project into the Richmond River looking at some chemicals. Quite a few were found, including one banned. Uh, Jason says the disposal of banned chemicals should be free and readily available to stop people from leaving old drums disintegrating out of the way. I'm sure there are programs in place, Jason. Hopefully your local council could help you out with that one. Uh, Jock's also sent a text in wondering how running sheep amongst solar panels will go. He wants to know how owners are dealing with sheep eating any of the wiring. I hope that wiring is uh, certainly safe from the sheep, but it's one of those challenges to work through, isn't it, Jock? Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. A new leader in the Sunshine State, Stephen Miles, to take over from Anastasia Palaszczuk as Queensland Premier. Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock gives her final speech of the year. The RBA wants to keep cold, hard cash flowing through the economy. And eviction season, tenants struggle to pay the rent in the lead-up to a cost-of-living Christmas. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. But on the country, our market's still to come, but the Richmond Valley Council has rejected all tenders to lease the Northern Rivers Livestock Exchange in Casino. Last week, Council said that the leasing proposal had garnered widespread attention and interest interest from industry leading entities and multiple submissions were received but now it's determined unanimously to decline all tender submissions due to them either being non-conforming or not fully addressing the tendering criteria and council has authorized the general manager to enter into direct negotiations with the preferred entities the casino auctioneers association submitted a tender to lease the facility its president andrew somerville spoke to kim honan it's an interesting position that it's been left in now. Obviously, from the details we have, that none of those uh, tenders conformed or, or met the criteria that they uh, that they were proposing or chasing. So I guess it leaves everyone in limbo a bit as to where everyone stands still. Having put in the submission, are you surprised that the associations was either non-conforming or didn't fully address the, the tendering criteria? Uh, obviously, I was very aware that our our uh, submission wouldn't be conforming. It does surprise me, though. There's been a lot of talk around industry leaders in, in this side of things, and I'm surprised that they were were non-conforming or didn't meet the criteria. But obviously, I knew we wouldn't 
Do you have any idea how many tenders were submitted? No, I don't. So what does this mean for the, the future of the Northern Rivers Livestock Exchange? I guess the plan was to have the facility opened early in the new year for sales to, to move back from Lismore to Casino. You know, what's the, the plan now? What do agents do? I guess we just keep going how we've been going at, at the minute. Um, I don't think there's a lot else more we can do at this stage. We just wait and see what the next the next step of the process is. Council look as though they made this call early, which is good. So hopefully, hopefully that'll allow for negotiations to happen quickly and and get it on track. Well, council says that the GM of Vaughan McDonald is now going to enter direct negotiations with the preferred entities for the NRLX lease. Um, do you know if the association is one of those preferred entities? Uh, we haven't had any feedback as of yet. Okay, but obviously you would like to be one of those preferred entities and enter into a direct negotiation with the GM to hopefully take over the operation of NRLX? Yeah, of course. We've, we've spent a fair bit of time and money on, on preparing a submission that we we thought put us in a position where we would get a seat at the table, so I hope we get the opportunity. So given that there's some un- uncertainty about as to who's going to operate NRLX and when, in fact, the facility will reopen. Will you continue operating in Lismore? Will you put plans to run sales there in January? How far ahead are you going to commit to Lismore for? Oh, look, I think there's a lot of water got to go under the bridge before we get to those conversations. Obviously, we'll continue to do what we see best fit for our clients and, and then ourselves. So whatever that decision is, that's what we'll run with. That's Andrew Somerville, the president of Casino Auctioneers Association and Richmond Valley Council has been contacted for comment. It is time for the markets and Leanne Dax has been at Wodonga. Good afternoon. Wodonga sales saw a huge turnout of 3,100 cattle. Agents brought forward high-quality range of heavy export stock across all categories. However, the market was affected by the oversupply of stock at other selling centres in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, which made the buyers more choosy. Bullocks were five cents cheaper, ranging from 2.30 to 2.78. Heavy steers faced variable prices depending on feedlot demand and dropped seven cents. They sold from 229 to 295. Large Frisian steers went for 160 to 218. Trade steers lost 10 cents due to erratic demand. They sold from 206 to 268. The heifer section improved 10 cents because of the quality, making from 219 to 249. Villa suffered from weak demand and fell 7 to 10 cents, with the best ones selling at 210 to 284. Heavy cows had steady demand but lower prices, easing 7 cents. The better heavy cows sold at 208 to 232 and the top bull fetched 237. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Crystal Ridley at Forbes. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted slightly this hour with agents yarding 35,200 head. Lamb numbers lifted to 23,200 and quality was fair with good numbers of trade and heavyweight lambs on offer along with the planer and secondary types. The usual buyers are present and competing in a significantly dearer market. There was 4,600 new season lambs penned and prices lifted $10 and more in places. Trade weight 20 to 24 kilos selling from 122 to 166. 
86, while the heavyweight lamb sold from 143 to a top of 185. The old lamb showed significant change, jumping 15 to 20 dollars, again more in places and dearer as the sale progressed. Trade weight lambs 20 to 24 kilos sold from 135 to 169. Heavyweight lambs 24 to 26 kilos received from 172 to 187.60. The heavyweight lambs over 26 kilos sold from 150 to a top price of $238 a head. The balance of the lambs and 12,000 head of mutton are still to be sold. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. To Gunnedah with James Armitage. Good afternoon. Numbers fell sharply, however, there was still 1,800 pen for the final sale of 2023. Young cattle predominantly with medium and heavyweight yearlings well supplied. A very mixed quality penning, not too many straight bred lines. All regular buyers attended. However, demand from restockers and feedlots was weaker. This resulted in cheaper trends for all weight categories in the yearling steers. Lightweights to 330 kilos saw sea mussels reach 318 cents a kilo. The medium and heavyweights 290 to 340 and 266 to 324 cents respectively. Heavy trade to 316 cents remained firm with a quality related price increase. Those cheaper trends carried into the yearling heifers with the plainest lightweights most affected. Medium and heavyweights only slightly cheaper selling from 232 to 296 cents. Heavy trade were dearer to 282 cents a kilo. Demand for cows was also weaker with heavyweights as much as 12 cents cheaper. They sold from 178 to 223 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Gunnada. In Varel with Stephen Adams. Good afternoon. 1,763 head pen for the last sale, a reduction of 1,283. It was a mixed quality offering. Trends were mostly cheaper with not all processes operating. Limited weaners to a cheaper trend, 278 to steers and 270 to heifers. Light background steers, 210 to 300, back 30 cents. And feeders, 260 to 320, slipping 11. Medium weights to feed, 254 to 326, back 12. Heavy feed is considerably cheaper to 292 to 316. Heavy steers to slaughter, 249. Light heifers to background, up 20 cents a kilo, 252 to 280. Feeder heifers, 16 cents a kilo, better, 238 to 283. Processor heifers to 275. Grown heifers mode, 218. Medium cows, 202. Heavy cows firm to cheaper, 186 to 220. And feeder cows to 178. Bulls made 224. Stephen Adams, MLA at Inverell. And Angus Barlow's at Scone. Good afternoon. Similar numbers to last week as Scone agents yarded 1,025 mixed quality cattle, the last sale before the Christmas break. Greater numbers of weaners this week, along with some handy runs of well bred yearlings suitable to the lot feeders and around 70 cows penned. Not all of the regular orders in place, and along with the continued hot conditions, the enthusiasm of the previous two weeks had somewhat been extinguished. At the time of this report, lights to your weaners returning to the paddock cheaper by 43 cents, 135 to 358, averaging around 266. Those over 280 kilos, little change, 168 to 338. Similar cheaper trends of 56 cents for lightweight wiener heifers, 100 to 260. Light yearling heifers, dearer trends of 12 cents, 150 to 252, with medium weights going to lot feeder orders, 238 to 268. Breed and, and lack of numbers in the steer section, factors to be 30 cents better off. Light two score cows, 20 cents cheaper, 70 to 180, with heavy three score prime cows cheaper by 16 cents, 185 to a top of 222. From all on sundry here at Scone, a safe and enjoyable festive season. Angus Barlow for MLA. 
Lovely message there from Angus. That is it for Scone for this year and a lot of them, a lot of those sales wrapping up. More to come across the week, though. That's the country hour for today. Uh, Robert Urala sent us a text to say that he's seriously considering leaving the district. He says that uh, solar farms will never be put on his land. Thanks for your input across the day. Have a good one.